Welcome again to the Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. Today, we're joined by Murray Arms, the Founder and Managing Director of Sense Studio, an architectural practice specializing in dispute avoidance and resolution services. Murray is a chartered arbitrator, an adjudicator, mediator, and much more besides, and a very good friend of Kingston School of Arts Part 3 program. So a very warm welcome, Murray. Thanks for uh, doing this with me. Let me just quickly start, uh, since the big news, I suppose, is that you joined now with J.S. Held, which is a major global practice in America that's got forensic architecture and engineering specialism. So can you give us a flavor of the implications for your office? Yeah, sure. Well, I, you know, I think the implications are such that um, what it will enable us to do is to extend our global reach, which is what we were looking to do. And, uh, you know, prior to that, we're a relatively small company of 16. And I think it's going to be certainly much better for us to get more global presence and more international work by, uh, by joining with JSL. One of the issues that I was concerned about is continuity of the company and the security of employment for the team. Um, we're a fairly unique part of JS Held. They, they've never had architect experts before. And, and in fact, there's very few architect expert teams in the world. Many architect experts or some architect experts work as uh, individuals, um, but there are, there are really only sort of a handful of, of actual teams. So, um, so far, I think as far as our team is concerned, nothing really has changed to any great extent, except that we have different masters to, to report to. It will change uh, because what JS Held wants to do is to use us as the basis for what they call their European and international hub. So that will be grown from our team and we'll probably bring on board other disciplines such as structures, MEP, quantum, delay, you know, all, all the other things that a multidisciplinary dispute resolution service offers. Very good, very good. We'll take it just a step back, if you don't mind. Standard question, we always ask everybody who kind of comes on the podcast just to tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, how do you got to where you are now? And since I see that you started in architecture and then 20 years later, there you are studying for an MSc in construction law at King's. Uh, just talk us through your air quotes journey. So you're absolutely right. I started out as an architect. I worked for a number of practices, some larger, some smaller. And then around about um, 1991, had the opportunity to form my own practice with one of my then work colleagues. And, uh, and that we did. Originally, we had some like four years of work ahead of us. Uh, but unfortunately, the early 90s recession put pay to that after about six or seven months. Um, and then interestingly, some of the work that we were then doing at that time was assisting a contractor and a developer um, with disputes that they were having. They were having disputes about quality of buildings. And I, I had no idea this was expert witness work or that it might actually form the foundation of something to come later. But it was it was certainly another string to our bow. But I continued with my own practice until certainly the early 2000s, but became a little disillusioned. I think your students, I'm sure, don't want to hear this, but a little disillusioned with the way in which we were becoming design subcontractors for, for main contractors. And a good friend of mine had, had mentioned it some years before, um, and you've mentioned it also, which is the master's degree in construction law at King's College. And so I, I had a look at that and thought, well, that's actually quite, 
quite interesting. Um, and on day one of that course, the, the professor stood up and said, this course has the power to change your life. Um, and I suppose to some extent for me, that's exactly what he did because I saw a different way to use 20 odd years worth of skills, use them in a different way to, to assist people. And many people that say, well, how on earth could you make that transition from architecture to, uh, I suppose, the more legal side, if you like, to some extent, although it's not all legal, it's, there's a lot of technical work involved as well. I would say to them, well, as an architect, I always felt nobody wanted the best I could do when I got up in the morning. Whereas now, because people are in trouble, boy, they want the best you can do. And it just, it just makes a difference. Uh, I, I won't tell you my own personal similarity with uh, working in planning supervision, which also kind of dis dissuaded me from staying in architecture because it was so boring, but moving on to something more interesting. Anyway, um, look, in terms of this uh, conversation about dispute resolution, can you just talk us through what a dispute is? What does it mean? Well, I think, you know, you can go to any dictionary and you can find a, a dictionary definition. The only, the only contracts that I think define what a dispute is are the FIDIC contracts. Uh, FIDIC is an international engineering contract, as you, as you know. Um, but I've got my own sort of definition, which um, uh, I think refers back to the fact that even on the best projects, you always get disagreements. And, and disagreements are not necessarily a bad thing because they, they themselves can, um, can help with innovation. But I always say a dispute, in my view, is when a disagreement starts to impact on the commercial interests of one or other of the parties. And as soon as that happens, then they start to fight each other. As it happens, it's a, it's a kind of a disputatious kind of industry, isn't it? There's, it's, I, I remember, I mean, it's, my goodness, it's 30-odd years ago, isn't it, since Latham and Egan, how time flies. And then you had uh, ISO 44001, the International Standard on Collaborative Business Relationships, um, saying that everything was going to be resolved, we were going to work more harmoniously. Uh, so was that all wishful thinking, pie in the sky, or was there you know, good intent there, or what, what happened? I think a lot depends on how the individual contract is set up. I mean, we've seen some very successful ways in which collaborative working has been uh, very successful, like, for instance, T5, Terminal 5 at Heathrow, very, very successful. But that relied on there being, I suppose, very high quality participants, experienced participants, participants that were prepared to, to sign up to if you like, the, the charter, that they would cooperate in, in good faith and uh, not everybody's prepared to do that. And, and also it was a project where there was sufficient money to enable this to happen. I think the problem with the majority of building projects is they're done on a shoestring um, and it becomes disputatious or whatever, I'm not sure that's a real word, actually, Austin. maybe it is, <laughs> <laughs> um, become dispute prone, perhaps, um, simply because, you know, to get a job, a contractor may have to under, well, does almost certainly have to underbid another contractor. It's not always possible to have all the risks visible at the outset, which introduces uncertainty. It's extremely difficult, I think, to define a building project in terms of a written contract. Um, and even if you take the written contract and all the documents that go with it, you can't actually define every nut and bolt. 
And if you have a contractor who has perhaps slightly underbid a project, is relying on variations to to make his money, then you know therein lies a problem. And I, I think, unfortunately, that's the way many projects go. Sadly true. On the side of, of the architect, since a lot of our listeners would be architects, is there anything that you've, you've found over the years of like architects or construction professionals, let's say, what they always do wrong or, or something that they don't appreciate the seriousness of you know, the consequences of their actions? In, in other words, have you got any advice for architects from the start of this process to avoid uh, problems? Yeah, I think the difficulty with architects is the, the job is it's difficult and it requires a huge range of skills. And I think when you're looking at more complex projects, you can't really have one architect doing everything. It's almost impossible. You have the talented designer. Well, they should, they should design. But that talented designer is probably not going to be too interested in doing the door and window schedules and the sanitary wear schedules and the ironmongery schedules. But nonetheless, there are people who... Uh, in whose technical skills are such that they're quite well adapted to, to doing that, perhaps more so than the, the design. And then I think for, for architects, the thing that almost always gets forgotten, both in terms of, of fees and anticipated effort required, is the contract administration. It's always difficult because if, you, you know, if you're landed with a, a difficult contractor, then of course you're effectively having to underwrite that by providing perhaps more time than you'd have to provide if it were a, a contractor that was producing better, a better quality product. Um, so there's always, a, there's always a gamble. But, you know, so many times we see projects where basically all the money is spent on the design and there's not enough left over for the contract administration. Yeah. Um, but we see all sorts of things. You know, sometimes there's not enough time and money allowed to do the detailed design, um, particularly in design and build projects where, you know, the pressure is on for the contractor to get on site and, um, uh, and get building. It, it can be very difficult, um, especially where you've got lots of packages to coordinate uh, and maybe that coordination doesn't take place as well as it should. All right. Well, since you're talking about that kind of moment of architect and contractor working together or contract administrator and contractor, I mean, as an aside, do you think that the alleged magic of BIM will help resolve some of these problems or the, the, the move towards modular prefabricated construction? Do you think that's going to solve some of these problems or, or no? I think I think both certainly will solve some of these problems. They introduce a whole raft of new ones. Um, I mean, BIM can be, if it's applied properly and used properly, can be very effective form uh, a way in which to, to communicate the building project. But most BIM models at the stage of development we, we're currently at will only do a certain amount of that. You know, you're not going to put your door handles and your PowerPoints and so on necessarily on a, on, on a BIM model. It would just take too long and too much processing power. But I think uh, for the, the overall coordination of a project, BIM is a, is a really good thing. It introduces certain complexities, such as who owns the BIM model? Um, you know, do you have intellectual property issues? What happens if the BIM model gets corrupted? So 
whilst it's a good thing, and, and I think it's 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 progress, although it's progress that's had to be funded probably by those who are least able to afford it, like the you know like the design professions. Nonetheless, it is or will carry with it certain other issues. Offsite fabrication, obviously, that can um, help a great deal in terms of consistency of quality. Um, we see quite a bit of off-site fabrication used in hotels, for instance, or university accommodation. And there's no doubt that, that it saves money. But again, um, some of the issues that we see there is where not all of the coordination has been thought through from the beginning. And then all of a sudden you end up with 200 bedrooms that don't quite fit together. Um, so if you make a mistake in modular construction, it's multiplied by the number of, of elements in that construction. Uh, well, you know, worth worth knowing and realizing these things. There's this sneaky kind of realization that that's what happens, but um, it's good to hear it's uh, said so uh, boldly. Well, look, can we just move into the discussion about dispute resolution and then in terms of mediation, adjudication, arbitration, those kind of three things? Big question for you. Can you say what they are? What they are? <laughs> okay. Well, well, mediation, arbitration, adjudication, litigation, they're all what I call... Uh, reactive methods of dispute resolution. So they all take place after a dispute has crystallized. In fact, you can't actually um, move forward with any of those uh, until a dispute is crystallized. There's another one you haven't mentioned called dispute boards that maybe we'll come on to later, which is what I call um, a proactive method of dispute resolution because you're actually aiming to um, avoid an issue becoming a dispute. But things like, obviously, the most common form of dispute resolution um, your students will find is probably adjudication. That tends to be the first port of call for construction projects. It's quick. It's advertised as being cheap, but it's not quite as cheap and quick as it used to be. It's quite um, aggressive. It's um, very confrontational because um, it all happens in a very short period of time. Mediation is slightly different. Mediation is a process where both parties have to agree to mediate. It's a voluntary process. Whereas to contrast that adjudication, once you get an adjudication referral, you have no control over when you might receive one of those. Um, and it's pretty much in the hands of one, one or other of the parties to trigger that process. And it's much the same for arbitration and for litigation as well. Um, but me mediation is probably unique out of that range of dispute resolution techniques because it is voluntary all of them rely on there being an independent neutral to decide the dispute and to a greater or lesser extent you tend to lose control once once you've gone beyond negotiating with the other party if you have a problem the first port of call should really be a meeting and, and negotiations because you have, the parties have absolute control of the outcome. You can agree or disagree. In mediation, you have a, you also have control of the outcome because the mediator doesn't actually decide the dispute. Um, it's in the hands of the parties. The mediator just helps facilitate a solution. But once you get to adjudication, arbitration, litigation, you've handed your dispute over to a third party and you have lost control of the, the outcome. Um, it's entirely in the hands of the judge that might have got up out of bed on the wrong side of bed that morning. You're in the hands of an adjudicator. You have no hand in choosing. You don't know who that adjudicator is. Or you're in the hands of arbitrators. With arbitrators, of course, you, you do have, to some extent anyway, a choice of tribunal. Uh, but I don't know if that goes 
Is that no, it's fine. No, it's good. Yeah, I mean, I think. I mean, first of all, I, I read somewhere that ninety-eight percent of disputes end in adjudication. So it's the it's the yeah. key one which you mentioned. But also, I read somewhere. I think. I mean, you, I think, said uh, adjudication. It's turning into arbitration without the benefit. I think that's yeah. one of your phrases. I just wonder what yeah. you meant by that. Well, adjudication, um, as anticipated by Egan in, in 1996, was basically uh, meant to be a quick and cheap form of dispute resolution. And the problem is, is that it has become more and more legalistic to the point where you pretty much always need legal advice for anything other than the simplest disputes. So therefore, you've got the additional cost, potentially the additional time. Of, um, of, of all of that. And in adjudication, you have no automatic right to recover your legal costs. So even if you win, you still end up paying your, your own costs. Now, that can be changed. You can write into the contract that the legal costs um, are recoverable. Starting at the other end of the scale, um, arbitration got itself a, a bad reputation for being very expensive and very time-consuming, but arbitrators now are alive to that, and they're trying to make the process more more efficient. So therefore, I think arbitration is coming closer to adjudication. They're starting to sort of meet within this sort of middle ground. And if you go with arbitration, then there are certain advantages, like the ability to recover costs, like the ability to have more than two parties. I had an adjudication probably last year, I think, where the employer said, well, actually, none of this is my fault. The the contractor, incidentally, was referring a dispute against the employer. The employer said, none of this is my fault. This is all the architect. I want to bring him in as well. Well, in arbitration, you can do that. But in adjudication, you can't. So that's just a few of the sort of advantages and disadvantages of, of the two. So basically, mediation is kind of non-binding, isn't it? Unless you contractually agree that, sign that as a, as a settlement agreement. Yeah, there's a real distinction between arbitration and litigation. So arbitration is private and confidential. So if privacy is important to your client, then when you, you choose your final dispute resolution method in a contract, tick arbitration. If you want something that's perhaps potentially quicker might be cheaper and you you want to go, you're happy to go to litigation, Um, litigation is public. In June, just what's that, a couple of months ago, the uh, 2021, in case anyone's listening to this in the future, uh, the UK's Civil Justice Council recommended that what we used to call alternative dispute resolution, ADR, becomes compulsory. So we lose the A for alternative uh, dispute resolution. So um, I just wondered... First of all, if you knew what the Civil Justice Council was, that would be quite helpful. Who the hell are they? Uh, (laughs) I know of them, Second, what what do you think about mandating it? Yeah, well, the Civil Justice Council, of course, um, advises the Lord Lord Chancellor on um, matters of of civil procedure. But in terms of ADR, I suppose the question is, what is ADR? You know, alternative to what? And I'm assuming by that they mean an alternative to litigation or arbitration. And so those alternatives are adjudication. Well, to some extent, adjudication, well, to a very large extent, adjudication is something you can't actually contract out of. So it, it is, it's not compulsory. Um, you can potentially go to, to litigation first, but there's a fairly recent court case where um, a party tried to do that and the other party said, no, you know, you've got to go to adjudication first. And the court upheld that. So to some extent, you know, adjudication is becoming compulsory, you know, despite 
your final means of dispute resolution, whether it's arbitration or, or, or litigation. Mediation, I hope, will never become compulsory. It, you know, the whole sort of foundation of mediation is it's a voluntary process. And uh, I know when, when I meet parties for the first time, you know, it, it's good to be able to say to them, look, you're here voluntarily. You don't have to be here. It's great that you are here. Um, and let's, you know, work on, work on that basis. But nobody's forcing you to stay if you don't want to. Because I, I thought, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, the ADR, when you say alternative, alternative to litigation, as I, as I always thought it, it was that idea about in the time and money, the clogging up of the courts, again, back in, you know, the, in the 1980s yeah. and 90s. And the argument was that silly disputes could be resolved by knocking some heads together because people are spending an awful lot of money, wasting time, and in fact, it could be easily resolved. But in some ways, um, I've read lots of suggestions that actually it led to a more litigious or, or another word, adjudicatious uh, society where people were kind of seeing ADR as a way of maybe pushing their case that they might not win in the courts, but as a way of people settling, um, you know, just, just to make it go away. What, what, am I being too uh, cynical? I think a slightly cynical way of, of, of looking at it. I mean, I think there may be some adjudications that are done on this sort of rather speculative basis. But um, I think for the most part, people are, people are pretty serious. And uh, I think that's partly the reason why 98% of disputes don't go beyond adjudication. People have got a decision that they can live with. They might not like it, but they can at least live with it. Probably don't want to spend any more money going to court to potentially get exactly the same result. Okay, very diplomatically put, uh, Murray. So in, in terms of practicalities then, because since we're moving into it, and you mentioned them earlier, dispute board uh, membership, you are a dispute board member, so you can speak uh, well of it. Is it ITER, I-T-E-R? Is that the project you're working on? Yeah, the ITER project. ITER, ITER, yes. Yeah. So that's the nuclear fusion experiment uh, in Europe and CERN, European Organisation for Nuclear Research. You're working with both, both of those as a dispute board member. So first of all, tell us what it is that, that you do, they do, and tell me also okay. whether it means you have to be a kind of a knowledgeable about European legislation. Sure. So um, ITER is, it's probably the world's largest and most important energy project that very few people have heard about. And as you, as you said, Austin, it's a, a prototype nuclear fusion project, which um, if uh, if it's successful, is potentially at least one of the solutions to the world's energy problems because you take, I'll put it very crudely, uh, hydrogen and seawater, it's not quite hydrogen, it's not quite seawater, put them together at very high temperature within a magnetic field that generates enormous amounts of energy. Unique project, it's um, something like 34 countries of the world have come together to, to build this enormous complex in, in southern France, in a place called Cadarache. And um, it's a program to take from start to finish 35 years. So it's been going now for about 10 or 12 years. We're hoping that the civil works will be completed in about a year or two. And they're hoping that what they call first plasma, in other words, they turn it on and hopefully the whole thing doesn't go bang, should be around about 2025. One of the good things about fusion is that um, it's pretty fail safe. So in other words, um, if anything goes wrong, it just stops. It's not like a fission reactor. You don't get meltdown. But on that, we have anything up to eight contractors on site at any one time. And when we say contractors, they're all joint ventures because the project is enormous and the contracts are enormous. The whole project is a 23 billion euro project. 
So the, the scope for disputes, you would have thought, would be very considerable. How do we help them avoid disputes? We visit the site and we, we look at the works and we, we meet the parties, we meet the employer, we meet the, the contractors, and we discuss any matters of concern that they have. And uh, we try to, to steer them in a direction that avoids disputes. We've had a couple of instances where that's not been possible. And then they have available to them a very rapid form of, of dispute resolution. It's a little bit like adjudication that uh, takes place in uh, for the ITA projects in 28 days. So it's a very short period of time. CERN have had experiences of all sorts of different kinds of, of contract. And when they built the original Large Hadron Collider, um, they decided to put a dispute board in place and they felt it was very successful. And since the, the completion of that project, which I'm not quite sure how long ago it was, it's quite a long time ago now, probably 20 odd years ago, they've had contracts with and without dispute boards. And they have found inevitably that the ones without dispute boards don't tend to go very well. So the, the project we're involved in is called the High Luminosity Project, which increases the number of protons being accelerated around the, uh, around the accelerator by 100 times, which I'm told gives them a, a 100 times greater chance of finding what they're looking for. So it's, it's like the world's largest lottery machine, I suppose. Um, and again, we do exactly the same thing there. We, we go and visit them uh, every now and again, every, every three to four months. Um, obviously, during COVID, it's been a, not been face-to-face. -face, it's been on Zoom calls or, or Teams calls. And again, if they have issues, then we, we discuss their issues. We've also tried out another aspect of the dispute board process um, where one of the contractors thought they had a dispute. And we suggested to them, rather than referring that as a formal dispute and um, uh, incurring all the costs and time of doing that, that they ask us for an informal recommendation, an informal opinion. And that can be done very quickly. They have 14 days to formulate their dispute. Um, the employer had 14 days to respond, and then we had 14 days to give an opinion. And that's completely non-binding on the parties, but it gives them the flavour of what might happen were they to spend the time and money and formally refer it. Well, this goes back to your one of your original points that this is a mega million billion whatever quadrillion dollar project yeah. and it's hugely high profile therefore everybody wants it to succeed in some respects as a yeah. business as well as as well as um as a project but, in some but, but it, it, yeah, it doesn't just apply to those um my smallest dispute board is in in uh, west africa and and that's a 10 10 million dollar again still quite quite sizable but it's a 10 million dollar uh, World Bank funded project. It's an electrical distribution project, um, and the funding banks do not want their funds and their money to be to be used um, to fund disputes. No, it's like it's a it's a bit like those kind of velvet glove, uh, whatever it used to be called, the Iron Fist uh, projects back in uh, Egan's day, isn't it? That actually, yeah. that the idea of working harmoniously it always helps if it's backed up with a bit of an iron fist that we will withdraw funding or we'll clobber you or whatever it might be. So. Some yes, of those, some of those projects aren't as aren't as kind of uh, communitarian as they maybe they're led to believe. 
Again, my cynicism shouldn't infect you, uh, Murray. Let me let me, <laughs> let me let me move on. Let me move on. Look, um, there was a recent report uh, by Arcadis, you know, the, the huge uh, design consultancy firm, uh, that said in the UK, I'll quote: "It says it is owner slash contractor slash subcontractors." failing to understand and or comply with its contractual obligations that has become the number one cause of construction disputes. That was relating just really to last year or the year before. I'm not sure if it's any different than any previous years, but they say the value of disputes doubled last year, but the settlement period halved. So I kind of want to know what you think about that and whether you think it might be a delayed impact of COVID or whatever having an impact on, on that. Possibly. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure quite where they've got that data from um, and why they say what they have said. Um, certainly, we saw um, a very large upturn in, in our workload um, pretty much as soon as lockdown started in, in March uh, 2019. Uh, sorry, March 2020, I should say. Um, but it didn't seem to be COVID-related. Um, I would say very few of our disputes have been COVID-related. I've had a few adjudications that are COVID-related. So um, I suppose it's a bit like people blaming Brexit. It, you need a sort of culprit to, to blame. It's possible that um, maybe, in, you know, certainly in times where cash flow becomes tight, then the, the number of disputes in, increases, whether COVID has actually caused cash flow problems for contractors, I don't know. But as soon as it does, I mean, certainly in 2008, for instance, when we had the banking crisis, um, I think we almost saw our workload doubling overnight. But yeah, whether it's directly related to COVID, uh, I'm not sure about that. All right, well, let me just, let me quickly push you on it then, because obviously there is, I mean, there is some things of 2020, 2021, which are kind of unknown and may materialize sometime in the future, because in, in some ways, by a miracle, a lot of construction sites carried on working. But yeah. There were still quite a few that, that closed down, you know, either by the contractor saying that there was too much of a risk for their workers or the client pulled out, wherever it might be. And a lot of that was kind of by mutual agreement. But I just wonder, I wonder what you think as to whether you think that that's, you know, that, that harmonious moment of agreement in a global pandemic may in some way turn out to be a little bit sour, maybe further down the line when the cost implications and the, you know, the employment implications are, are, are discovered. Yeah. Probably rather depends on, on how well they recorded that agreement. Uh, if it's, uh, if it's uh, recorded in a proper document, then I think it would, uh, it would stand up, even if perhaps retrospectively people are, people are not so happy about it. I mean, certainly where, where we have seen issues on the CERN project, for instance, uh, whereas in France, building sites were expected to continue, in Geneva, the local government shut building sites. So, of course, you know, there's an issue there, not, not for very long. It was a matter of about three weeks, I think, when they were completely shut down. And it then becomes, it then becomes a, a question of, you know, is this force majeure? Is this something that is completely unexpected? Nobody could have possibly thought about or is this some kind of um, legislative change that uh, you know a contract will um, will generally cater for? Okay. Well, so, well since you asked the rhetorical question, uh, let me push you on an answer in terms of UK. Leaving aside, and I go for a generic, abstract case. Do you would you suggest that it is a force majeure clause that could be? Uh, that is a very difficult one, Austin, and it depends a lot on the way the the individual contract has been has been drafted. Yeah, it's it's not possible, I think, to to generalise. Some 
you could argue, yeah, a force majeure, and there are others where it's much harder to argue that. It becomes a quite a technical legal point to argue those things. Okay. Never asked a legal expert a legally stupid question. Um, <laughs> well, I'm not a lawyer, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, but you, you know your stuff. But anyway, look, so final question really, I suppose, uh, on dispute resolution. I'm just wondering whether you would, notwithstanding that you wouldn't encourage somebody to go straight from part three, say, into expert uh, witness work or dispute resolution work because they wouldn't have the experience. But would you encourage them to move into this field because it's rewarding, not just financially, but, you know, in terms of, is it a rewarding job, do you think? I, I personally find it absolutely fascinating. You know, it's, uh, um, as you say, there, there are the financial issues. It does pay a little bit better than architecture, but it's taken me all around the world, you know, working on some of the largest, most complex, highest value disputes in the world. And on the sort of projects I could probably only have dreamt of working on as, a, as an architect. Um, so yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly interesting. But I think anybody who is interested in this, although um, I always say to people, I think you need 10 to 15 years good, solid uh, experience in an office, um, technical experience in particular, contract administration, maybe some, maybe some working abroad is also ideal. Um, 10, 15 years as a minimum. But nonetheless, if you think it's something that you're interested in, then I would say to people, you need to plan 10 years ahead. So if you think you're interested, then perhaps after you've got over the, uh, the part three exams and all those things, in a year or two's time, you might think, well, actually, I'll do that, King, that King's MSc. Because having done that course, that doesn't necessarily mean that all the doors will suddenly open for you. There's a sort of a stepping stone path that um, with a few hurdles in between. And it, ta it takes a few years to, to get these things. I mean, I, I finished the King's course and probably took me nearly five years after that to get into doing this sort of work full time. Well, King's, there are other courses are available and also not to be confused with Kingston, uh, part three, uh, which is a sublime uh, part three course. Anyway, look, thanks very much, uh, Murray. Very, very good. It'd be very interesting. Hopefully it'll give pause to thought, I think, to those involved in the industry. Uh, you can find Murray Arms of Sense Studios on www.sensestudio. That's S-E-N-S-E-S-T-U-D-I-O.co.uk. The JS Held connection is yet to be ironed out, I guess. Please tune in to Professional Practice Podcast and listen to our archive on SoundCloud or iTunes. Click on the links. My name is Austin Williams. Thanks for listening. Until the next time, from Murray and myself, goodbye. Thank you very much, Austin.